I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And welcome to the Napoleonicist. I have a few guests with me today as we debate the greatest invention of the Napoleonic age. Joining me are Professor Beatrice de Graaf from Utrecht University, Rachel Stark, a Napoleonic commentator who is prolific on Twitter, Dr. Kit Chapman, a science historian, author and podcaster, and Marcus Cribb, the heritage expert and my co-presenter on History Hacks Sharpshooters series. Welcome all of you. Great to have you on. Welcome, Kit, who is a first-timer to the world of the Napoleonicist. It's great to have you all. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the format today is really simple. Each of my guests will have five minutes to make their pitch for what they consider to have been the greatest invention of the period. And then both I and their fellow guests will ask some politely probing questions to see if the argument can be undermined. We'll then open it up to a vote on Twitter, and the winner gets the right to smile in a slightly smug and self-contented way. I don't know, there's, there's no real prize for this, only the glory of having been vindicated by the popular vote. So let's kick things off with our Napoleonicist newbie, Kit. What are you going for? Uh, so I have gone for the steam engine. Um, because this is really the driver. One of the challenges with uh, science history is where do you say something has been invented? Because everything is really a progression. So the first steam engine is actually Thomas Newcomen's, which is at the start of the 18th century. Um, but that was essentially you heat water into steam, steam drives a piston, piston does the work, and then you cool the steam back into water and do the whole cycle again. The problem is it's not very efficient. And it was basically mostly used to pump water out of mines. It's only when you get to the 1770s and 1775, when you get James Watt realizing that about 80% of the energy from this steam is being lost by these machines. And so that's because you have to cool down the machine during the strokes. So he separated out the condenser. It was a really simple solution that could be retrofitted onto these other contraptions. Um, and what you did was you got a power stroke almost immediately. 
and this is hard to put into to words how big a game changer this new Steam engine was, the Watt Steam engine, because the design which he sold with Matthew Bolton drove the industrial revolution. Work that would have taken a day could now be done in a minute. Initially, these standalone steam engines were used mostly in the mines, pulling resources outside of the earth, and that made the British the most powerful country in the world in a decade. But we're not done. It also made factories viable for the first time. We entered into an era where we moved away from the cottage industries and we started seeing mass-produced textiles on a scale never seen before on earth. This brings people out of the countryside and it brings them into towns to work. Power, raw, unfiltered power was here for the first time. But we're not done yet because steam engines don't have to just drive factories and machinery. Steam engines also gave way to the steam locomotive. Now we don't get things like traction engines until 1850. I think people often think of those as Victorian. Forget about that for now. In 1804, though, Richard Trevithick gives us the first working rail steam engine, and the railway is a game changer on a new scale entirely. By 1825, we get the Stockton Darlington Railway, the world's first railway. We also have the Liverpool and Manchester Railway authorised by an Act of Parliament the next year. Now, goods aren't reliant on horsepower and how many carts you have you, or, or access to a ship. You can haul them long distances over land, and movement becomes cheap. In 1832, an assessment of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was made. By road, the journey was four hours and cost 10 shillings inside a coach, five outside. By train, the trip was less than two hours and cost five shillings inside, three and six outside. Transport of goods, by 15 shillings a tonne, uh, by canal took about 20 hours. By rail, it was 10 times faster and cost only 10 shillings. We're getting huge amounts of track laid very shortly after the Napoleonic era because of these discoveries. And goods and people begin to move freely. Working classes can finally go on holiday to the seaside. It's not just the rich pricks who noop around at their leisure. And food, bricks, slate and coal can be brought into these growing cities. We change the landscape of our world. Militarily, troops can be transported anywhere very, very rapidly. And that shows in the big conflicts of the 19th century uh, from the American Civil War onward. It changes the face of military life. And finally, before the railway, before the steam engine, it didn't matter if Leeds and London were outside of about 40 minutes in terms of their clocks. Everyone had different time. But now you needed time to be synchronized so that you understood what was going on. We were moving that quickly. After the railway, standardized time was essential. So the steam engine didn't just change the landscape of the world. It didn't just kick off the industrial revolution and modern life. It changed how we told time. And there can't be a bigger impact than that. Tour de force kit, well played. Uh, yeah, I, I thought you'd bring the house down to start us off and, and you absolutely did. You made some really good points about how the working class benefited. In the shorter term, though, with the that tension about mechanisation, can the argument be made that actually the working class lose out? Because it's only in time as they embrace the new reality that is imposed upon them by this advance in technology that they then are able to have jobs in factories and therefore have the affluence to then benefit from things like trips to the seaside. And initially, actually, they're worse off because of the steam engine. 
I think that's an interesting argument to make. One of the things we do see throughout the 18th century is uh, land enclosures, particularly in areas such as Scotland, which are already impacting on the working class in the countryside. So I would argue that the, um, the disenfranchisement of the poor is already happening. And we see that there has to be big land reforms and big changes, um, things like stamp acts, for example, um, and, uh, and the Chartist movements occurring in the early 19th century, which means that there has to be these big societal changes. I think they were coming anyway. If you look at some of the principal causes of, uh, of the French Revolution, for example, we see that that is largely because of a disenfranchisement of the poor already. So I think that these are larger societal problems that aren't driven by uh, the Industrial Revolution. They're actually already there. And this other question isn't really a kind of an attempt to undermine the argument so much as just blind curiosity. Is there anybody else who's trying to achieve a similar thing at this point in time? You know, do we have a French or a German or an American equivalent where they're trying to make the technology work and they just can't manage it? We have so many different people doing so many different things at this time. Um, the Napoleonic era is actually one of the great sort of scientific golden ages. Um, you have the birth of chemistry itself in France, uh, just before the French Revolution, a guy called Antoine Lavoisier. He is, by all accounts, the first chemist. Uh, certainly he's the first person who tried to make a list of what counts as a chemical element. If anyone's seen the periodic table uh, and that, that sort of that list, um, he was the guy that first tried to do it. He didn't try and put it in order. Uh, I think he thought light and calories were elements, which was, he, was, uh, he wasn't quite right. Um, and he got killed during the French Revolution, um, mainly because of angry tobacconists, uh, because he was trying to, to sort of regulate uh, the quality of tobacco. So you've got people like him, you've got Jan Jakob Bazelius um, in, in Sweden, who's uh, doing some fascinating work as well. So the, the short answer is yes, there are people across the world who are making these breakthroughs, trying these new techniques, trying to improve machines all the time. And even in the UK, you have rival inventors. I mentioned Trevithick. He wasn't really the person that actually got the railways going. Um, his railways didn't work very well. James Watt uh, built a steam engine uh, for locomotion, which didn't work. So it's not just this sort of one single person driving things in countries. There are people competing, there are rivals. It's, it's a big scientific mess. Brilliant, thank you very much. Let me open it up to the floor. Has anybody, is anybody brave enough to try and take down the steam engine? <laughs> That's uh, pretty much an impossible case to argue against. You've, you've been so eloquent about it. Two, two questions then for, for me, Kit, really then. Uh, furthering on to what Zach said, the rapid urbanisation, uh, too, too rapid, is uh, in it wasn't regulated, led to basically um, indebted servitude, uh, especially uh, in South Wales and areas like that, where the, then the factory owners would own the housing, would own all the shops and the salaries. And so they would actually have already lost their rent before their uh, monthly salary because they'd be on weekly rent and monthly salary, so they'd be taking loans out. So that's kind that the, the steam engine as an industrial and then obviously it brings us on to a new crime we kind of have like crimes on railways transport police have to be founded and at the i want to say liverpool manchester railway unveiling one of wellington's cabinet is run over by a train and killed well so we, we now have the, train the accidents <laughs> Yeah, he was. He was run down by, by rockets. Um, it's quite an interesting uh, accident, though, because he and Wellington weren't getting on. He'd actually walked out to Wellington's carriage to try and patch the relationship up. 
Um, he wasn't the only person that was out on track. He was actually told not to get out of the carriage, um, but they were actually sort of in a, a lay-by. And then um, Stevenson's rocket was coming along the other track. He could have gone over to the platform. He, he would have been fine. He could have pushed himself against the carriage. He would have been fine. Um, unfortunately, he was renowned for being incredibly clumsy. And he trips up as he's trying to get out of the way of the, um, of the coach. Uh, and then he tries to climb into the Duke of Wellington's carriage. And the door that he's hanging onto swings open right in front of the train that's oncoming, and he gets smashed that way. Yes. So it's, it's, it's a bizarre comedy of errors that actually leads to that gentleman's death. I don't think we can blame the uh, the railways entirely. I think it's uh, it's just sort of unlucky. Um, yes. Yeah. But uh, my, the, the the kind of oh, I know it's comedy, but he was run over by a train. And if there was no train was, engine, he then he couldn't have been run over by a train. <laughs> Um, indentured servitude and, and the, uh, the consequences of industrialization are, is a big question. Was it too fast? Um, was there anything we could have done to slow down? The interesting comparators to make, of course, is what happens in other countries, the rivals to, uh, to, to Great Britain, particularly in terms of, uh, of trade. And a big example there is, of course, America, who become overly reliant um, and increasingly reliant on slavery in its actual form. Um, so I think that the British is certainly the lesser of two evils in that regard. Um, but uh, you, you're absolutely right that the, the working classes um, do struggle. And there is a big period where we uh, start seeing you know, child labour, for example. We see um, very, very poor wages. We see this concept of, of, of a weekend not existing, people just basically working until they die. Um, it is one of the big prop challenges we have to talk, address with the Industrial Revolution. It's something we see in developing countries as well. Um, how do we get around that? Um, I don't think, though, that you can blame that on technology. That's, that's a societal problem. And it's a problem that's emerged with the technologies and people just not being able to adapt fast enough. Like I said at the start, tour de force. Um, it's a tough act to follow. Thank you very much for that, Kit. Is it, I mean, this is a, yeah, I mean, Kit and what you guys who are listening can't see is that Kit's just done the mic drop thing and, and absolutely right. Um, it's a question of who am I going to be most mean to next in terms of following Kit. Um, I suppose I have to be mean to Marcus, don't I? My, my podcasting double act. Marcus, you're doing shrapnel, I believe. Yes, and I bought a prop. Um... Yes, so an invention directly named after uh, its inventor. It's a shame that not all steam trains are called the Rocket or uh, the Stevenson, uh, but we do have shrapnel. And, it, and it's specific to Henry Shrapnel, a Royal Artillery officer. Uh, and we're talking about the Napoleonic era, so I thought, I mean, stereotypical for me, but I thought it would be right to do a weapon. And there are many to choose from, um, from Le Marchand, 17... 96 blades to Dundas's drill manuals to actually Congreve's rockets um, through to rifling itself, most famously under Azil Baker, which gave us the Baker rifle or the infantry pattern rifle, actually, as it would have been called in the era, uh, which Napoleon rejected and gave the Allies a marked um, size up. But something that was out there and was really refined by the British initially and then uh, given to our Allies was shrapnel. And in layman's terms, what he managed to perfect was an outer and an inner casing that would both explode evenly with a layer of ball bearings inside that wasn't going to be muffled, that wasn't going to be dissipated 
um, on its explosion. So it's a particularly horrible thing. Uh, when it explodes, you don't just get areas of the casing uh, flying off in random directions, random sizes, uh, which is what basically effectively the French uh, had. But the shrapnel allows an equidistant explosion of quite a large effect. This made a huge improvement on Allied artillery. For example, um, all Allied batteries basically by the end of the conflicts had six guns, of which one of which would be a howitzer firing shrapnel, uh, the rest firing solid shot or, or canister. So it is making up a sixth of the artillery. It gives a huge effect over formations such as the French column, which is what they insisted on carrying on using, or um, at least column of divisions. And it did change battles. It did change uh, the outcome of the war, arguably by the sad effect of killing more men than were trying to kill us. Um, of course, Zach, you know probably what battle I'm going to mention, but you might not know the example. The opening shot, effectively, of the Second Battle of Porto was a French gun being brought into position against the seminary. And before it could open fire, a British howitzer across the river lobbed a howitzer shell and perfectly wiped out the French gun crew to a man, it was noted, uh, was lying, writhing or dead. Uh, the way it worked so effectively is it did work by mathematics. A fuse was uh, cut to a direct length in the top of uh, the shell. And this would be down to the number of seconds. You do not want it to explode into the ground. And you do not want it to explode high up overhead, especially not at its zenith. It is trying to get a conical effect coming down onto the enemy uh, and to cause mass death and destruction, a cone of shrapnel balls that will be following the trajectory down and onto mass pack. Um, it's kind of poetic in its mathematics, but deadly disgusting uh, effect upon the enemy. But because it changed the outcourse of many battles and therefore the wars, uh, bringing the end to Napoleonic Wars, maybe by killing many, it saved some lives, or at least it, ch it changed the outcome of history as we know it. Uh, so we have an allied victory, not a Napoleonic one. So for its disgusting accuracy, huge killing ability, but also clever mathematics and engineering, I uh, nominate the shrapnel. Nicely done, Marcus. Although I think your reputation as a sharp fan is going to take a battering having not done the Baker rifle. Are you, are you really a sharp fan if you don't champion the rifle at every single opportunity? I don't know. I know. I'm almost breaking a stereotype by choosing another weapon. You, you are. Um, I'm surprised you didn't do rockets either, actually, having done wargaming with you on many occasions and knowing you're incredibly irritating love of the rocket also a qualified missile operator within the royal artillery but shrapnel wins for me yeah um i mean my my objection i guess would be this is kind of a cheap shot pun sort of intended um is the the killing element is it really the greatest invention if its sole contribution to humanity is look we can kill people more effectively yes I mean, there are many, we still say great men, um, some great ladies, Joan of Arc, come, uh, Boudicca come to mind. Um, you can be great and you can be deadly. I mean, the cult Napoleon persists and the guy killed a lot of people. So if, if he's not great, then Andy Roberts needs to rescind the title of his book. 
any opportunity and Marcus will bash Colt Napoleon as we established when he debated with Luke Daly Groves back in November for an hour and a half and neither of them budged an inch. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fair, fair comment uh, in return. Let me open it up to the floor. Um, so you're saying, and I, I think it's a valid point, obviously it might have ended the wars or contributed to the, to the early end of the war by making death more efficient. But in terms of its legacy, um, kind of picking up on what Zach said, if you make military matters more and more efficient, and we see obviously the progression into the, the 20th century, and I guess I'm quite interested in this because my grandfather was a Japanese prisoner of war, and he had shrapnel on his body literally till the day he died. Um, so obviously looking at it against us against Napoleon, but then it was the uptake goes elsewhere and military matters get more and more uh, efficient. Does that really benefit humanity? I guess it's more a reiteration of what Zach said, but does it benefit humanity in the long run? I mean, that is the problem with all warfare and all weapon technology is it leads to a spiral. As soon as you create something, someone will try to outdo. Um, the reason that I think shrapnel is because for this self-contained era, the French um, forces do not develop this technology, even though obviously it is available to create because the uh, British do create it. So it's kind of this, we get a step up and they don't get that step up for the era. And the other legacy is, it's not definite, but it's quite likely that your grandfather didn't get shrapnel. What he probably got was casing, as sad as that is. But we now call all explosions and all bits that come off it shrapnel shrapnel actually is specific to the ball bearings inside um and hopefully he didn't have that i mean hopefully he wasn't suffering too badly um but it's quite likely he actually had the casing uh, actually and the ball bearings because they either rip through and kill or rip through and, and go out uh, it is still like a musket ball and we still have that today uh, there are still shrapnel shells but it, it tends to be the horrible bits of like jagged metal that actually get stuck in people because of the tearing effect um so i guess in a way it's a bit like uh you know we call all we call all hoovers hoover even though they aren't invented by hoover uh, i guess that's one of its legacies is in its name as well okay i hadn't actually realized that so thanks for clearing that up um, I've just got two questions. Uh, the first is, if the French had stopped using column, how would effect how effective would shrapnel have been? So it still would have been effective um, because most actually armies would have been attacking in a formation similar to column. Um, the British marched in column, for example, so it's not a unique thing. Uh, what the French struggled to do was ever really break out of using column too much. We think at Waterloo they're actually were advancing in a in by like battalion lines, but they were really just densely packed. So even then when they're in lines, they're too close together. If it, it was not very effective against skirmish formations. So, sharp, you know, Zach's sharp reference, for example, yes, it will ping off one or two people, but it's not gonna get the, the mass of Sharp's light infantry company because they're spread out. So yeah, it is not as effective against that, but what it is also good at is actually getting over terrain rather than a, um, a round shot which has to bounce so it can go and go over rocks into trees uh and i'm very much thinking of you know i like my pop culture references band of brothers where you've got the timed shots in uh, the bastone uh, in the woods that's basically uh what it then became again became a, a, a physical clock uh, a time case which it basically is today um so it has different uses it actually has an illumination um capability 
uh, mostly done by the rockets at the time, but they were very few and far between. So it did have um, that kind of, uh, and incendiary uh, too. So it did have uh, an ability to burn down buildings and such like. The other question I had was to do with actually firing the projectile, um, because I don't know were, were howitzers around before then. I know what they were around afterwards, but was this something that happened with, with shrapnel? Yes, yeah, so howitzers had been around, but they were just doing um, case shot, as it was like spherical shot, as it was technically called, but which is a solid um, shot hollowed out and then just a load of gunpowder inside. They'd been around for quite a while. Um, trench mortars, I think, are going back to around the 1600s, but it was getting this two layers of metal. So you've got explosive, then a, then a layer. Um, so it's almost like your, your magma in the middle of the core of the earth. You layer then of ball bearings packed in that do not move around too much. And then a layer, all that is stable and that will explode outwards rather and in a kind of mathematically perfect way, um, which was the difficult thing to, to manage and also make it that it's robust and can be handled and can be uh, transported. So yeah, how it's has been around. What they've done is perfect uh, the the munition and then had to write um, a manual um, artillery officers were one few one of the few who were trained and didn't just purchase their way in so it was a technical profession as horrible as it was it's you know necessary to have additional training and and school of thought on it very interesting two incredibly good uh, contributions there thank you um, Marcus for that one and another great one coming up courtesy of Rachel. Yeah I've got some pretty big shoes to follow. Um, I have gone for Edward Jenner's smallpox vaccine um, which a I genuinely think is one of humanity's great inventions not just the, the Napoleonic era um, but b it felt also like a very topical choice given that we are still living in the circumstances that we are in the, the Covid pandemic. Um, and just thinking about the, the way our lives have been for the last year um, under COVID, this had been a disease that hadn't just been around for, for a year. This was a disease that had been plaguing humanity for millennia, as far back as they think 10,000 BC. Um, certainly Ramses V's mummy shows evidence that he had suffered from it. Um, and it's estimated that in the Napoleonic periods in Europe alone, 400,000 people died annually of smallpox. And we look at death, you know, death counts now and think, God, that's horrific. This was just a, a fact of life. There was no kind of hope at that time that things were going to get better. This was just a sad reality of life. You could get smallpox and die. And it wasn't a disease that discriminated. You could get it if you were rich or poor, young or old, whether you were born a peasant, whether you were born to royalty, because several of Marie Antoinette's siblings died of it. She had it when she was two. Uh, Talleyrand had had it and survived. Robespierre had it and survived. Uh, two of George III's children had died of it and Mary II of England had died of it. So it really didn't discriminate how you were born. The case fatality rates varied from something like 20% to 60%, but in children that could be as high as 80%. So it really was just this horrific scourge on, on humankind. And this is kind of picks up on what Kit said earlier on about when is something really invented. Edward Jenner didn't pioneer the idea that exposure to a disease built up resistance that had been around for some time. And there are other instances of immunization 
prior prior to his vaccine, but he was the first to scientifically apply the theory and test it. Um, and in 1796, he'd heard a dairy maid say something like, well, I'm really glad I've had the cowpox because my face will never get ruined by smallpox and I'll always have my good looks. And he kind of made the correlation between the two. Um, the slightly less palatable element of the story is he then tested his theory on an eight-year-old boy um, called Joseph Phipps. And um, when he, that was with the cowpox lesions and when he introduced him to smallpox lesion, he didn't develop the illness. He took that to the Royal Society the following year, was rejected, uh, had to go and build up more cases and returned with it, published a pamphlet. And by 1800, we see the uptake of vaccination uh, in the UK. There was, he was widely ridiculed at the time as well. And there was quite a strong anti-vaccine uh, movement, you know, why please to change? Um, but particularly from the clergy, because it was viewed as ungodly to introduce animal matter into the, the human body and they were taking stuff from cowpox lesions. Um, but we do see this uptake um, in vaccination by 1800. Napoleon was actually um, quite pro-science and pro-vaccination. He had all his troops um, immunized in 1805, actually had a medal struck to commemorate Jenner and but it is part of the code Napoleon, there were vaccine legislation. And if anybody's listening that hasn't listened to Alexander Grab's really fascinating talk on um, vaccination in Italy, it's on the Messina Society's YouTube page and it's really worth a listen. And it was talking about the, the impact of that in, in Italy. And there was hundreds of thousands of people they immunized uh, in Italy. Obviously there was a great uptake in Britain as well. And we, we saw uptake spread across the world. And when I was kind of prepping for this, I wanted to look and see if the lives that Jenner is said to have saved as a result of the, the vaccine could be quantified. The lowest estimate I could find on that was 530 million, because obviously by the 1960s, smallpox had been eradicated. Um, higher estimates said possibly into the billions, because also through the transferable principles of immunology, we vaccinate against measles, we vaccinate against TB, we vaccinate against diphtheria and tetanus and, and you name it. Obviously now at the moment, we're all waiting to receive our COVID vaccine and it's the only hope we really have of life going back to normal. So his legacy isn't just smallpox, but immunology um, as a whole. And I think the one thing that kind of really sums up that the greatness of Jenner's invention is that Napoleon, who let's face it, was the furthest thing in the world from first in the queue when they gave out modesty, called Jenner one of the greatest benefactors of mankind. And I think if Napoleon Bonaparte is willing to give you that kind of props, I think you're probably doing quite well. And he actually released two British, he thought so highly of Jenner that um, he had two British prisoners uh, in France I think actually one might have been in Italy, sorry. And uh, Jenner personally wrote to Napoleon uh, requesting their release. And Napoleon said, do as he says, release them because I can refuse this man nothing. He is humanity's greatest benefactor. And I sort of feel like if, if Napoleon's willing to say that about you, you're, you're doing quite well. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rounds of applause around the room. That is another absolute mic drop there from Rachel. See, it's very difficult to try and come up with counter arguments to the Jenna vaccine, especially at the moment, without just sounding A, churlish, and B, like an absolute anti-vaxxer. Um, and having been very fortunate to have benefited from Jenna's work on many occasions, you know, I, I'm, I'm not inclined to start tearing holes in the concept of vaccination one little bit. I always urge people to get vaccinated, um, provided the relevant research has been done to ensure a vaccine is safe. You mentioned how Jenna wasn't the first to pioneer the idea of generating immunity within people. So what kind of techniques were there before this point and to what extent was what Jenna was doing genuinely going in an entirely new direction? I don't think it was necessarily going in an entirely new direction because um, I read up a couple of cases and there was um, Lady Montague had wanted her child to be vaccinated and it was based on the same kind of principles again that if you took something off a lesion and, and introduced it to the skin hopefully the body would build up resistance but there was nothing really it had not been through a widespread scientific um, trial there had been really no coherent scientific strategy or thought on it it certainly hadn't been introduced in the way that you know, he took it to the Royal Society and there was government uptake and that they spread it spread it wider I mean it could have potentially had anybody pursued the scientific route they might have beaten him to it it's a bit like the steam engine you know if, if somebody else had been quicker off the mark if somebody had you know put their arguments together and and taken it further it might not have been the Jenner vaccine, it might have been somebody else's, but um, there, there did seem to be a history, even going back into, you know, the early Middle Ages, the idea that variology was, was practiced and if you caught some milder case of something, it would help build up, they didn't call it antibodies at those that point, but it built up your resistant and you'd less of a chance of, of dying of it. Um, but again, somebody else might, it was just a case of right place, right time, you overheard the right conversation really, and his is the work that we we benefit from. Yeah, the only other thing that I've got against Jenna is that if Napoleon said that he could refuse Jenna nothing, then surely having <laughs> secure kids worked out where my thinking's going already, um, because I'm, I'm just so shameless on this, aren't I? But I mean, his potential as a diplomat, surely if he'd asked Napoleon to, you know, stop invading other nations and just accept the peace terms as they were, perhaps history could have been very different and even more people could have um, been saved from untimely deaths. But my- Napoleon are gonna hate you. <laughs> my Napoleon bashing aside, let me open it up to the floor. Well, um, I find it very hard to argue against vaccination because if you look at the, the, the sort of four pillars of modern medicine, you've basically got uh, you know, sanitation, anesthesia, vaccination, 
and um, and sort of germ theory as well. Um, so it's very very hard to argue about it. The one thing I will come back to you on is is the is the character of James Phipps, who was a very healthy eight year old boy that Jenna decided to inject with smallpox. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm not proposing the man for sainthood in the slightest. That is hugely unethical, particularly looking at it from a modern viewpoint. And he did it to his own children as well. He, I think his youngest was 11 months old when he did that. And that was very much still in the, the testing period. So I am not in any way can, um, suggesting Jenner be canonised. Like any great figure, I don't think there's anybody that we could say is totally beyond criticism, no matter how much we're a, a fan of their work, whether that be Jenner, whether it be Wellington, whether it be, you know, Emmeline Pankhurst, whether it be Churchill, whatever, everybody's got legitimate criticisms. And this is certainly the one that you could level at, at Jenner. No child experimentation isn't ethical. Um, and it's not very palat palatable that we benefit effectively from that exploitation of a child but it's it's what led to the the successful vaccination program being rolled out fair enough um i guess my questions are if there was inoculation of smallpox before how again how much of it was kind of you know, I, the one that springs to mind and not only because the Catherine the great tv series which frames itself as not being historically accurate, but doing some reading based on that. Um, I know that she championed smallpox, smallpox inoculation in Russia in the 18th century. Uh, and I know from various readings that the, the British Army, for example, were inoculated against yellow fever before they went to Egypt in 1801. So vaccination was already out there. So yeah, it's kind of how much do you believe in, in Jenna and how much did he take something that was all, how much did he refine and how much did he innovate? Because I guess one of my, my yeah, that's my question. I've got a closing statement at the end, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, did, he didn't innovate because um, um, Maria Theresa as well, had, in advance of, of Jenner's vaccine becoming, you know, the, the widespread science, she had lost four, four or five of her children to smallpox. And I guess you could almost technically say that smallpox is the indirectly caused Marie Antoinette's fate because her sister, Maria Josepha, died of smallpox and then all the royal brides of Austria got moved one space up the marriage ladder um, so she might not have necessarily been queen of France if it hadn't been for smallpox so that's kind of a tragic um a tragic turn of affairs for her so no he didn't he didn't innovate it was it was taken building on you know existing scientific thought refining it um and and he was the one who had approached it scientifically there were kind of small pockets of inoculation um well I mean 1801 it was he, his paper went to the Royal Society in 1797. So he had proposed that in advance of 1801. But it's, I mean, it's not a real invention. As I say, it was kind of going back to what Kit said earlier on, who in, really invents something, but it was bringing it forward at the right time, the person who put the, the scientific chops behind it. And that's why his name's the one attached to it. But no, he, he didn't invent the idea of inoculation at all. No, cool. I mean, my only other statement on that, uh, well defended, is that Catherine the Great called the, the equivalent of anti-vaxxers or blockheads, which I quite think is relevant to today. She wasn't wrong. Rachel, thanks very much for that. That was a brilliant case that you put there for Jenna's vaccine. Going from one incredibly strong entry 
to another, but one with a, a very different take on the idea of the greatest invention. Beatrice, you're doing something a little bit more negative, aren't you? Yes, it depends on how you view it, of course, but uh, you could argue that one of the inventions or uh, at least the legacies of the Napoleonic era was the fact that it created the first type of modern police state. Now, I do know that this is quite a controversial statement to make. Uh, for example, a Napoleonic scholar as Cherry Lenz argues forcibly against the fact that uh, the empire was a dict military dictatorship or police state. But there are others who still compound the fact that it was a security state, it was an état sécuritaire, an état policière. And I uh, sort of feel that I agree with that. And um, well, it's obviously with history, it's always the case, uh, did Napoleon invent it from scratch? No, he didn't. He was a man of the 18th century. He was a man of the Enlightenment. He had read his Rousseau and he knew about the social contract. And he also knew about the well-ordered police state idea of the Enlightenment. And it was not just to do with police, but with public welfare as such. So he came from that and he had read his works. So he was an encyclopedist. He knew about uh, the machinery of the state. And that was something that he wanted to implement. It was already there in thought. And it was already there in some countries as well. For example, with um, the Kameralistique in Prussia, uh, uh, there were also kind of police apparatuses in other countries, notably also in Britain. But what I think is Napo what Napoleon really did, he he was a smooth operator. He was at home, not the despot and the dictator that he was abroad. And he sort of guided France into relinquishing parts of its liberty in return for law and order and stability. So what he did was he sort of sacrificed the fruits of liberty that the revolution had brought with its chaos for security. So not to glory, but to security. And uh, well, there, there are numerous examples that you can bring to make this more concrete. And Michael Broers has, for example, extensively written about that. Napoleon completely overhauled and centralized the gendarmerie. He expanded the corps. He made every uh, gendarme prefect a kind of minute uh, emperor. Um, Napoleon called it un empereur uh, sur petit pied, a little emperors everywhere in France, of course, only loyal to him. And he also installed his famous minister for police, Fouché, and Joseph Fouché. And what Fouché did was that he brought everything under his control. He was the first one establishing great data sets, not just to repress, but to prevent disorder from happening. Um, border control, passport control, uh, lists, blacklists of people. And this is a kind of an almost modern day surveillance apparatus that was really only in place under Napoleon. And it was in, in, in such an extent the legacy of Napoleon that when the restoration set in in 1815, he was vanquished, uh, this did not go away. All the other countries, the monarchs, they were quite happy to take over what Napoleon had implemented. So I think you could make a forceful case. I have more examples to, to, to show you that, well, one little example, the one that I perhaps like best, is the fact that Fouché specialized himself in preparing little reports on fausses nouvelles that were en vogue in France. So he sent out, he dispatched agents into coffee houses. So this was not the foreign secret police, which was very active.
active in Britain, for example, under Wickham. This was a domestic security force uh, directed against its own public, gathering information, false rumors, fake news, false nouvelles. Very, very nice. So it's it's really a neologism that Fouché coined, and he reported to the emperor what was going on in his country on the l'esprit public, because l'esprit public, the, the, the public spirit, had brought the king to topple. So Napoleon knew that he had to rely on the l'esprit public in order to keep his power in place. And Fouché was the one who had to gauge the temperature of this esprit public by means of these reports. And my last point, interesting part, when the Allies took over Paris, not the first, but the second occupation of Paris, they implemented an alliierte verbündete Polizei. I say this in German because it was the Germans, the Prussians, that instigated upon this and Wellington approved. So an allied uh, um, a general police was established under the guidance of Justus von Gruner, a Berlin police director. And Gruner had Fouché as his advisor. And one of the first things that Gruner did for the allies, for Wellington, was compile bi-weekly faux nouvelle reports on l'esprit public in France. So they literally took over what Fouché had left them. So in terms of questions, thank you for that, because you made a, a great case there. Um, quite how our listeners are going to choose between the four, I really don't know. You talk about Fouché a great deal within that. How much of this is Fouché? who's driven that forward and how much of it is Napoleon or is Napoleon kind of just stealing other ideas that he's read about as was quite often the case with Napoleon in terms of him being a, a great synthesizer of different ideas into a system that he wanted. Is, is this Fouché who gets the sort of credit inverted commas for the invention or, or is this Napoleon's doing? That's a very good question and um, that's that's for me to, to make a final claim upon hard to do, but I get the impression that Fouché reported to Napoleon, that Fouché only carried out his task with the approval of his master. And it was very much Napoleon who had said that his uh, order would be based on law and order, on predictability, on stability, rather than on liberty, rather than on chaos. And uh, that for in, in his idea of Napoleon's idea of, of the empire uh, was that it was a centralized monarchical regime, more or less. And for a monarchical regime, a centralized rule, you need centralized control and surveillance apparatus. And he saw Fouché as the best fit to carry out the task. And Fouché worked towards him. I'm not sure whether Napoleon invented everything. I don't think so. Yet on the other hand, he already had made his experience uh, with the bulletins for the Grande Armée. So he knew how important it was to be the master of your own propaganda apparatus. And that was the army. Fouché did so at home. But Napoleon knew about the importance of this l'esprit public, about the importance of molding, of crafting and shaping public spirit around yourself. and. Uh, he did so on many occasions. He was also the one who commissioned, for example, this famous painting that was exhibited in 1804, where he um, visits the plague house in Jaffa. So he's just been defeated with the Egyptian campaign and he comes home and then he displays this painting in order to showcase himself to the world. Uh, he administered a royal touch to this, this, this ailing soldier with the, 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 um, this bubonic plague um, uh, inflictions. 
And this is very much Napoleon shaping public image. And he also spread the news, he spread the propaganda and vice versa. He also wanted to know what people said about him. And this is something that Fouché was best at in operating. So I think it was a kind of symbiosis between the two of them. But it's certainly not so that Napoleon had no say in this. And in terms of measuring the effectiveness of this system, do how, how do we do that? Do we just take it that look, there is no great coup to topple Napoleon? There is no revolutionary change of government that isn't instigated by Napoleon himself after 1799? And so therefore, that is the measure of success, or are there some great kind of flashpoints where the Napoleonic regime is saved by the success of this system? Uh, that, that's a very good question, and it's a question very difficult to, 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 to answer. Also, in modern day dictatorships and regimes, are they successful because they do have so many spies and agents? Or are they uh, lacking in public support and legitimacy? And that's why they need so many spies and agents to repress public sentiment. Um, for Napoleon, we know that there were a couple of thwarted uh, assassination attempts in 1800. And um, for the, the, the police service did a great deal and almost um, Sherlock Holmes-like uh, detective work to detect the people who were behind the plot and they apprehended them and made a great show out of that. So that was a real success, a staged success. And then there's the Mallet conspiracy in 1808. So there are some plots that were attempted and thwarted by means of Napoleon's police uh, services. On the other hand, he had great uh, support at home. So the police was not there to prevent attacks from happening. The police was there for Napoleon to be aware on the atmosphere in the country um, and to control the level of conscription, to control the payment of taxes. Uh, and if you take success, if you measure success um, to the extent the empire was able to levy, uh, to organize the levee mass, to organize the payment of taxes, then it was a quite successful empire. The police and the gendarmerie helped to substantiate that. I mean, the other thing that occurs to me in this, and I'll, I'll make this the final question. Um, 1815, obviously Napoleon comes back after his exile in Elba. There is that big debate about the extent to which this was a, a popular move um, and whether actually the, the populace of France was war weary and Napoleon's return is in effect, as Charles Estelle has argued, a military coup because it's the army that flocks to him. It's the veterans who want that return to the glory days that therefore creates this mood of, of popularity that then uh, leads to the, the army switching sides and the, the Bourbons fleeing. Do you think that there's anything kind of significantly different about what Napoleon does in 1815? Because a lot is made about how it's a very different regime, much more sort of constitutional. Do you think that's a result of him being able to implement this old system um, and therefore being able to read the mood that much better? Or do you think there are just other factors in play? Well, I always tend to think that Napoleon's return was really quite a farce, it was quite farcical. It was, and it, it tends to be more in the direction of an army coup than that it was a um, wholehearted attempt to throw off the yoke of the monarchs once again. And um, well, uh, an argument made by Wellington himself in 1815 was that the allies would never have been able to roll back Napoleon within 
only a couple of weeks without the target or the open support of the French population, and most notably in the north, uh, the part where, where the battles took place. Um, and there's this, this, this band of, of occupational areas in the north and, and, and the east of France. That's where the people were not that happy to see Napoleon return. They were perhaps happy in the south, where there was a strong royalist base, the Vendée, where the white terror waged late, later on. But um, um, I'm not so sure whether they were so happy in the north, in, in Britannia, Britannia, for example. And um, also, the, your point about Napoleon coming back and, for example, implementing a new constitution, presenting himself as a peace um, ruler, peaceful ruler, presenting himself someone who would now really start to abolish the slavery, implement uh, civil liberties. Well, he had made it sure that uh, for him already, 1799, the revolution was finished, the revolution was perfected, and it was now time for a monarchical rule. And he presented himself on all those occasions as a strong man, dealing out stability and glory and security far more than liberty. So um, th there is this debate about uh, the balance between liberty and security. And sometimes people start to argue, say, well, there was the panel code and there was kind of a predictability in the rule and that gave people more liberties. I do think that it has more to do with creating security, a stable platform for waging wars abroad. And it was really about civic liberties. And Napoleon was also the one who created state prisons, who put people on blacklists, um, who created the old police, uh, uh, who, who quelled dissent rather than allowing for it. And he implemented heavy censorship and he did not roll that back when he came back in 1815. Absolutely. Folks, this has been brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me. You've made some brilliant cases. We will leave it to Twitter to decide. So if you had to um, the what has effectively become the Napoleonicist Twitter feed, which is also my Twitter feed at Zedwhite History. You can vote for the what you consider to be the greatest invention. But Kit, Beatrice, Rachel, and Marcus, thank you all very much for joining me. Very welcome. For us. It's no great. I hope the discussion continues. I've only realised during this. Um, I've got one last thing to say for Shrapnel. He seems to be the only one who's actually independently invented something and everyone else was just the first one to get there so I, I think actually he's got a little chance That was Kit Chapman, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark and Beatrice de Graaf joining me to discuss the greatest invention of the Napoleonic Age. You can find them on Twitter respectively at chemistrykit, at mcribhistory, at bookish underscore Rachel and at Beatrice de Graaf. So what do you think? Which of the inventions that my guest championed was the greatest of this period? You can have your say in a vote on Twitter. Just search for me at ZWhiteHistory and you'll find a vote attached to the tweet about this episode. And as ever, the conversation continues in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Please remember to like, share, subscribe and leave a review. It helps massively in spreading the word. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can find details in the comments, some of which will cost you absolutely nothing. A particular thanks to my Patreon supporters, 
whose generosity has allowed me to invest their sponsorship, and a lot more besides, into Kit to enhance the quality of this podcast. Special shout-outs to my Commander patron, Ger Brown, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graff, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Roy Muir, James Bevan, Lucy Tatner, and Jim Deary. Join me in a fortnight when I will be talking about the Battle of Fuente Don Euro on the 210th anniversary of that battle. The battle that, I would argue, is the point where Wellington came closest to being beaten and made a rare mistake. So yes, you heard me right, I'll be criticising Wellington, not blindly singing his praises, because I strive for a balanced approach rather than cult worship. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.